has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. And I just wanted to give a shout out to one of our big subscribers, one of our big fans, uh, Monica Salas, who's my uh, friend, John Michella, who's a retired NYPD detective that lives down in Fort Lauderdale. She's a, a lawyer in the firm of Florida Family Law. Shout out to her. She's a big fan of the show. She uh, listens to us on the replay in the morning when she's in the shower. And she said she loves it, thinks that we have great personalities and that we're right on the money when it comes to uh, real crime. That's great to know. You know, folks, I just want to thank a lot of you guys. I get emails and uh, sometimes they're so kind uh, and such nice words that um, I'm really touched by it, especially from former members of the service. I just got an email from a retired a lieutenant who recounted a story where he ran into me in 2008 uh, in regards to a homicide arrest. And he claimed that I was a perfect gentleman when I interviewed him. Well, thank you so much. I wish I would have saved your name. I didn't, but I'm sure if you're watching, you'll know the story. And I uh, I know you recounted that your wife was sick. I hope she gets healthy and gets better and uh, relieves some of the feel good, feel good. pain in your life. Yeah. Um, you know, folks, uh, this Thursday, again, um, uh, Brian uh, Koberger has another court appearance. And this Thursday also happens to be the two-month anniversary of this horrific event. And it's been covered <clears throat> every way up and down the evidence, uh, the victimology, the perpology, as we call it. Um, looking at every aspect of this possible thing, behavioral analysts, talking heads coming out of the woodwork, some of them very good. Some of them couldn't find a bad guy in a state prison with the help of a warden, you know, but I uh, like that one, Billy. I like that one. <laughs> Some of them really, you could just see when they start talking, you're like, oh my God, where did this person work? You know, but um, we pride ourselves as being NYPD strong, NYPD tough, and being experienced in these type of crimes. And um, we're not trying to brag, you know, as William Brennan used to say, no brag, ma'am, just fact, you know, and uh, that was a terrible uh, impersonation of, uh, of William no brag, Brennan. Man. No yeah. brag, man. Just no brag, man. Just fact. So, but this, you know, one of the things I think that we want to know, just not as just as investigators or just as human beings, what is life like now? What is life going to be like now in Moscow, Idaho? What is it going to be like at the University of Idaho where the students apparently tomorrow are coming back uh, to take classes? I would believe that would be the spring semester. What is life going to be like? Is their life forever changed? Will they forever be looking over their shoulder? Will they forever not feel safe on a campus 
It probably is one of the safest places on this earth. But this person who did this, and again, Brian Koberger is innocent to proven guilty. But I don't say that I get attacked by all, by many people. But so he's innocent to proven guilty. Well, what is life going to be like for these students? What is it going to be like in the town of Moscow, Idaho? What is it going to be like for the police force that are forever changed by this event? Phil? Yeah, well, I think that the uh, the students returning is probably going to be met with some type of relief that they know that uh, everyone believes that the person responsible for this horrific quadruple homicide and the slaying of four young, beautiful college students from that area. Uh, th th there's going to be some sense of relief, but I think there's still going to be a lot of stress and anxiety. Uh, it's traumatic for these kids to know that uh, perhaps a student, maybe they didn't even know personally, but walked past on a daily basis or perhaps had gone into the restaurant where those kids worked, uh, that they're not going to see those kids anymore. So again, it's going to be a, a, a very subtle reminder. It's going to be traumatic for them. Hopefully there'll be some counselors on hand if kids do need to speak to somebody about their feelings about it. And again, um, I don't think uh, that town is ever going to be the same. Uh, you know, uh, they had a horrific, horrific thing happen. It gripped the nation. Uh, everyone that uh, was plugged into it was emotionally attached as we were. And again, there's a little bit of that, uh, that PTS feeling when you think about this stuff. And, you know, uh, that one uh, kid that was uh, a survivor in the house that was identified as DM, uh, you know, that kid really, uh, I just hope that uh, people don't look at her in a bad way. We don't know what she went through at that moment, uh, frozen in shock, whether it be for, uh, you know, being asleep or whatever it was. Uh, that kid is going to be very important going forward in this case. I'm sure that that kid will probably testify at a trial. And, uh, you know, it would be unwarranted to attack that kid in any way, shape or form. And uh, family members have come out and spoken in favor of that kid. So, again, uh, just keep that kid in your prayers as well with all of the families and all of the victims. There's a little bit of video of the students returning to campus. University of Idaho students say the mood on campus has changed following the arrest of Brian Kohlberger over the holiday break. I feel better sort of knowing that they they have the suspect in custody, that there's a chance that this might all be behind us soon enough. With spring semester about to kick off, a new sense of hope, even as much about the murder case remains unknown, including a motive. I think a lot of people are wondering how he planned it out, how it all came together, and why. The suspect is due back in court this week after appearing before an Idaho judge facing four counts of first-degree murder. Also in the courtroom, the family of victim Kaylee Gonzalez, seeing the accused killer in person for the first time. We can't, you know, stop all this fake information and these fake stories. What we can focus on is this individual and finding every piece of evidence. Overnight, Kaylee's sister describing the family's emotion when they found out a suspect was arrested. The relief that we all felt having a suspect in custody was uh, it was like, I can't even describe it. Like the weight of the world was lifted from our shoulders. According to a police affidavit, old fashioned detective work appears to have led to the arrest. But online, the pace of rumors and speculation from amateur sleuths has not slowed down. Over the weekend, some spreading unverified reports, Koberger may have attended a vigil for the victims and even posted in online groups devoted to the case. I think that it's quite possible that he was on some of these um, chat rooms, maybe taking part, maybe not, maybe just observing what other people were saying. While internet sleuths can be useful in some cold cases, a former FBI agent says 
they can also be an unwelcome distraction for law enforcement and cause real harm to innocent people, like the food truck guy. You know, folks, we saw this all throughout this investigation. Um, they call them, the media calls them internet sleuths. And putting out false information and putting out things like, oh, this person is definitely the killer. I mean, think of what that does during an international media case like this. When someone points a finger at someone with absolutely no proof and said, this guy's the killer. What do you think that does to the person's life? What do you think it does to the investigation? What do you think it does to the police who now have to double down and quickly interview this person to either clear or include this person? And I'll tell you who some of the worst offenders are. Not just the online, it's just the regular media, the, the, the national media. They're, they're horrendous. You know, how many times were they screaming, oh, should they take this case away from them? When does this become a cold case? This is a cold case. When does this become a cold I mean, just pathetic. And to think that they do this as a job all the time, yet they're, they're shoveling uh, or pouring gasoline on a fire that's already out of control. So the irresponsibility, I think, of some of the national media can't be underscored either. Absolutely, Billy. And I think the momentum that started early on in this case, the negative negativity towards the investigators and the investigation, like you said, uh, led to people coming to the opinion of a cold case. And we denounced that immediately. There's no way that this case was ever going to be a cold case till it was solved. I said that in the beginning, and I think it was uh, it held to be true. Um, and you have a very dangerous factor. When you name someone as a suspect, you could have someone that is unhinged, unstable, uh, deranged that could go off and try and hurt that person or kill that person and say, I'm doing it in the name of, uh, you know, uh, these, these victims and, and for, uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to say that I got the killer and to get justice for these victims. That's a very dangerous thing that they were doing. And you're right, Bill, the, uh, the mainstream media was just as guilty of any of the internet, uh, internet sleuths and, you know, people that have opinions, I get it. Uh, you might want to, voice those opinions in a chat or something like that. But when you publicly come out and, and this is being broadcast throughout the nation that you think this person or that person or someone is involved in it, or perhaps even pointing a finger and saying that person is a, su a suspect in this case, that's extremely dangerous. Phil, you said that the national media is just as guilty. No, they're more guilty because they're professionals at this and they're doing it. What's very extremely egregious is that they're doing it on purpose they're Agreed. doing it to sensationalize a case that doesn't need sensationalism. This case is sensational as it is. You know, folks had pointed at me a couple of times during the last few broadcasts that I didn't name the victims. And I'll just, you know, we all know their names. Sometimes I would refer to them as the, uh, the quadruple victims. But I'm going to say their names right now. Ethan Chapin, Zaina Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. And we'll forever remember their names, and the University of Idaho will forever, forever have these kids' names in their hearts and in their minds of this uni great university. I have to piggyback that, Bill. <clears throat> and if I'm guilty of not mentioning the names, I apologize, and hopefully no one is offended by that. Sometimes we do get caught up in the, uh, the moment you want to make a point, and you just refer to them as the victims of the quadruple homicide. But yes, those are real people 
real names. I'm going to repeat their names. Ethan Chapin, Madison Morgan, Zana Canoodle, and Kaylee Gonzalez. Those are the four victims that suffered this horrible, horrible fate. And again, they are real people and we want to acknowledge them. Absolutely. You know, folks, I also just want to mention, we appreciate you guys. This channel is growing. I really appreciate all you guys that have made that possible. Sometimes I, people have given me a super chat and I've, uh, I haven't been able to get back and um, say their name on the air. And it's not that I don't appreciate you. I get caught up in other things. Not only do I host this show, but I'm also producing it in case you don't notice that my head Producer, is bobbing around like, 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 a, like a robin going after a few worms in the ground, you know? But let me play a little bit more of this video here. Seen with Kaylee and Madison the night of the murders. And a female history professor now suing a popular TikToker for suggesting she was involved in the crime. That stuff is where online sleuthing kind of crosses the line. When you start accusing someone... Koberger has not entered a plea. He has a hearing on Thursday. His public defender in Pennsylvania said he, he expects to be exonerated. Savannah and Hoda, back to you guys. All right, Stephanie Goskin, Moscow, thank you. All right, let's welcome in our NBC News legal analyst, Camille Vasquez. Camille, good morning. Good to see you. Um, so size up this case. Um, we've got DNA evidence. There is a, a living person who was in the home who saw some things. How strong is the case against him? I think it's extremely strong. And I, you know, the police and the investigators are not in the business of telling us everything mm -hmm. that they have. Um, they want to put enough mm -hmm. to get probable cause to get a judge to sign that search warrant. Yeah, I mean, we won't know perhaps until the preliminary hearing more evidence in the case. I find it interesting. Mm -hmm. Hoda and I were just talking about it. You know, there were weeks and weeks where it seemed like there was nothing going on in the case. A lot of people were quite mm -hmm. critical of the police department. Now we learn that perhaps they had been tracking this suspect since late November. Investigators have to make a decision at that point to keep things close to the vest. That helps with the investigation, I presume. Exactly right. I mean, this is a case that's garnered so much attention worldwide, really. And so I think these investigators do not want to make any mistakes. They do not want to give the suspect any reason to have the case not go the way they want it to. We've heard a lot about these internet sleuths. Everyone's trying to get in on the case and give their theories and in some cases name names. Does Do those kind of folks hurt a case or can they occasionally help a case too? I think they can do both, right? I mean, I think the internet sleuths this has become something that really captivated the country, this case has. And so people want to talk about the evidence. They want to talk about the human impact. You know, Phil, uh, one of the reasons I, I believe, and, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is that people follow true crime and real crime is because they're really interested in injecting themselves and predicting and using the end. And that's fine. That's fine. But... It's when you cross the line is when you start pointing your finger and publicly or over the internet at someone by name. And that, that gets very dangerous. Absolutely. Because uh, as we know, you could be doxxed. And when we say the word doxxed, we mean that a person can have identified their home address, 
you know, where they live, their neighborhood, perhaps their vehicles, different things like that, that are easily accessible on the internet. So again, when you name a person, it's not that hard to figure out who they are, where they live. And again, like I said earlier, someone's unhinged or someone who is delusional could perhaps uh, try to harm that individual or just a, har a simple harassment. It's not unnecessary. You know, we all have our opinions about things and you're right. There's a great interest in this type of stuff. I get that. And we're glad that people are interested in it or else we won't be here doing the podcast. But again, you can't get uh, too far or get involved in the case. Uh, like they were talking about hiring uh, private investigators at some point early on in the investigation, which we were both uh, against and we denounced it. We thought that uh, that would just, you know, stymie things and just get in the way. And any private investigator that had integrity would, uh, you know, recuse himself from getting involved in a case like that. Maybe on a peripheral down the line. Okay. But in the early stages, no good. Phil, not only were we against it, but we told our reasoning why we were against it. And we were not just against it, extremely against it. And uh, for reasons that we wanted the case to be protected. One of the other things that everyone, I think, uh, and again, I should never say everyone because it's never everyone, but a many, a large group of people enjoyed about this case is the fact that there were many um, behavioral analysis people that came on as talking heads on all these TV shows. Some excellent, I mentioned by name, Bobby Chacon, who I write, I had him on the show last week. I thought he was fantastic, but there were a couple of um, FBI behavioral analysis that I don't think uh, really were too, too on top of it because what I blame that on is I blame it on an FBI agent or not just an FBI, someone that practices behavioral analysis that they're not street. They're not street cops. And Bobby Chacon, you can read street coming out of him all the way. And that's why when I heard him speak, I said, that guy's right on top of this. And some of them also echo each other. They hear one of them say one thing, and of course they jump on the same thing. And, oh, yes, that's because of this. It's almost like body language. Body language is a science, but again, it's not an exact science. And when, you know, when a body language analyst says, oh, this means the person's bored. Oh, all right. Yeah, very good. You know something? But it doesn't mean the person's bored for every single person on this earth. That might mean something different for someone else that does that or crossing your legs or putting your arms against your chest. Oh, that's showing he's uh, being deceptive. You know, come on. I'm just, I'm just giving you an example. That's good, Billy, because I think that I was able to read a person's body language only after I was talking to them for a while. So I don't think that just like you said, that one position, that means that everyone is bored. It would take a little bit of conversation, try to get some, uh, you know, just simple things out of the way, name, where do you live, things like that. And then once you start to get into a conversation, you can pick up on things when the person becomes this deceptive. Example given the body language. Maybe they look down when they're giving you something that you believe to be deceptive. So, again, that's a good point, Billy. Uh, it's not an exact science. I think each individual has their own different uh, giveaways, so to speak, on, on when they're not telling the truth or to being deceptive. And that's something that the investigator, the interrogator, has to pick up by being in a room with that person and having that conversation. Well, Phil, it's just like when you say to me, you say, What do you want from me? <laughs> and that means I'm pissed. <laughs> I know exactly what that means. They were That's just my a little, body language. A little levity, folks. But, you know, it's it's true is that 
body language and behavioral analysis is individual to the person that that you're interviewing. And when people, again, talk in generalities and absolutes, it drives me crazy. Because anyone that's done this for a living knows that no type of criminal investigation are there absolutes, absolutely absolutes. Sometimes, yeah, a a certain type of evidence points exactly in a certain place. But 99% of the time, you cannot speak in absolutes. Having said that, one of the things... um, that I think they're going to look at deeply in this case. Of course, this is a case that we said from day one is going to be solved by science and DNA and blood evidence and fiber evidence, low cards, principle of exchange. You guys should get three credits for watching all our episodes on this because we've spoken about many things that are covered in criminal justice courses. And Dr. Edmund Locard who has the principle of exchange, which means, for example, if Phil and I get into a tussling match, right, and we wrestle each other, something from Phil is going to wind up on me, and something from me is going to wind up on Phil. Maybe a little tomato sauce from my veal palm? It could be your cannoli. The cannoli cream got all over me. But uh, (laughs) this is getting crazy. But if we were in a physical altercation, it could be blood. Sure. Well, that is the principle of exchange. It's uh, cross-contamination of evidence, uh, evidence getting on. So we believe that once they, um, the Moscow police, the FBI, the Idaho State Police, once discovery is released and they give all the evidence to the defense, I believe they're going to have tons more evidence. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that we can't forget that when a person is charged with a crime, now this individual is going to be charged with four murder first degrees. Uh, The burden isn't on him to prove his innocence. It's the uh, prosecution that has to prove his guilt. So again, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, gathering every bit of information, every bit of evidence, following up every lead, uh, which we talked about how we think that there's going to be leads post arrest, maybe kids that came back to school now are going to remember something and they're going to, it might be related. Perhaps they saw Brian with a, uh, with a knife or whatever it may be. Again, all of those things are going to be things that we're going to want presented at trial. And then you're going to have a defense team that's going to be working hard to try and prove uh, that not that uh, Brian is innocent, so to speak. They're going to be trying to prove that that's not the case. There's doubt in uh, prosecution's case. That's what a defense team's job is to pr- uh, to try and create a doubt in just one of the jurors mind. And they could come up with a hung jury or perhaps an exoneration, which we hope should never, ever, ever happen. Pamela White, thank you so much for the $2 super chat. Thank you, Pam. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Maybe we have too many people from New York, but we like we like that. We like that. And if you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. Also, if you like this show, give us a thumbs up, make comments. We answer most of our comments. You can send us an email. I enjoy getting comments, sometimes not the nasty ones, but uh, you got to take the good with the bad. Also, we have a Patreon with three different levels if you want to support us financially. And you see the folks in the chat, they're part of our YouTube channel. And we have five different levels. uh, Folks with the green font are part of that uh, YouTube family. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, the behavioral analysis. And one of the things uh, 
the defendant, Brian uh, Koberger, apparently um, in his criminology class, they actually discussed these murders, which is sort of scary. But let me play a little bit of this. University of Idaho students. Now, we, we know, of course, that before the cross-country trip that suspect Brian Koberger took with his father from Washington State to their family's home in Pennsylvania, Koberger was one of 34 students in Washington State University's criminal justice and criminology graduate program. And here's what I found particularly fascinating. Tonight, we're learning from the Idaho statesman that in Koberger's courts and legal process class, they actually discussed this quadruple homicide that had occurred just 10 miles east of the campus. Yes, the suspect was in a criminology class where they talked about his alleged murders. Now, according to one of Koberger's classmates, the accused killer was, quote, completely silent as the discussion took place. And Brian Koberger's silence actually stood out, according to two fellow grad students who described Koberger before the November 13th killings, quote, he seemed gregarious and outgoing. That was really the only impression that I got. He was an incredibly strong student and talked during class every time he sat front and center, was not hiding or tucking back in the back. He was right there in the middle of it. News Nation spoke to Ben Roberts, one of the students, and he described Koberger's classroom demeanor. He very much liked it when everybody in the room knew that he knew what was going on, but it wasn't enough that you knew that he knew. He had to make absolutely sure you understood that he was small, that he had this intellectual capa uh, capacity. But apparently he was silent when it came to this case. Now, as Koberger sits in a Leda County jail, another strange twist, the Idaho Statesman reports that Koberger's enthusiasm for his concentrated area of study, understanding the criminal mind, was regularly on display. Quote, Brian only talked about his interest in forensic psychology. Maybe he was spending too much time on the psychology behind it and not enough on the nuts and bolts, considering the amount of evidence that law enforcement says Koberger left behind, from cell phone records to his car being caught on camera and even DNA left at the scene. Let's bring in News Nation senior national correspondent Brian Enton, who's been all over this. He's on the ground in Moscow, Idaho tonight, outside that house on King Road. Brian, uh, thanks for coming back on the program. Appreciate it. All right. You know, this this kid, uh, kid, this man, Brian Enton, he does a fantastic job. He's good. I mean, he followed the Gabby Petito case. I don't think he ever made it home during that. Uh, it was almost like a year where that case went on. And he really does do a fantastic job. And I think that because he's so personable, people basically entrust him and they open up to him, which is a uh, is a good trait to have as a reporter. So we're getting a more complete look at what Koberger may have been like uh, before he was identified as a suspect. I know you have spoken to a number of the folks who studied with him, worked with him. I find this to be fascinating, this possibility that they were actually talking about this case while he was in class. Yeah, it's really interesting, Dan, at Washington State University, just about 10 minutes from where we are in Moscow, Idaho, in, in Pullman, uh, Washington, where he was getting his PhD. Apparently, he was very, very talkative in class normally, uh, you know, shared his opinions, liked to participate. But when the discussion came up about the murders that happened in this house behind me, he did not say a word according to his classmates, which at the time apparently like didn't seem that strange. No one thought anything of it. But of course, uh, where we are at now, they're thinking back and remembering that it was certainly very interesting that, that he didn't want to talk about it. Thank you for
Bill, what do you make of that? Pretty interesting, huh? It's absolutely interesting, and it's a murder that happened just a few miles away. I am sure that it was talked about early on. I mean, it's a a, a, a psychological uh, forensic uh, class on criminology. And again, uh, he laid back on that where he was very eager to talk previously. But when it came to this subject, uh, I'm going to borrow a, uh, uh, a line from uh, from Mike and say that that's consciousness of guilt. Uh, Mike Geary said that several times on the show. I think that sure sort of like relates to that. It's consciousness of guilt. So he's not going to, he's going to have something to say about other things related to criminology, but on the case that he's apparently uh, perpetrator on, he lays back. So consciousness of guilt, I think screams out at that. Absolutely. You know, Phil, I, I had mentioned on other um, shows that, uh, I do. I did 16 years in the detective bureau as a sergeant, and 10 of those years were in homicide. And the place I worked before homicide was uh, the two three in Spanish Harlem, El Barrio, the Rose of Spanish Harlem. And um, in all of those years, hundreds—I don't know how many—I hate to say numbers—probably four or five hundred murders that I, I, I had gone to as a boss. And we never, ever used, ever, ever used a behavioral analyst. So I, I also find this extremely interesting because um, does the NYPD use behavioral analysts? I'm sure they would, and I'm sure they have access to them. But I'm just saying in my whole police career in homicide, we never, ever used a behavioral analyst. Billy, but we came out early on and said, based on statistics, we believe that, number one, uh, four people were slaughtered. So we believed it to be someone who was very strong. We believed it to be a male. Statistics show that uh, 85% or more of uh, homicides are committed by males. So again, uh, when you go into behavioral analysis and you're trying to come up with a profile, I think it was easy to get to that point. And then there's other things that, you know, you can bring to a profile that are going to be general, but might be right on target. And I don't think that anyone in the uh, behavioral analysis or profiling, uh, you know, uh, arena thought that uh, it was going to be someone who was going for their PhD in criminology, uh, a college student, just, uh, you know, a few minutes drive away from location where this homicide happened. So again, uh, it's not an exact science. Could it be helpful? Yes. On certain cases it can be, but I think some of the techniques that are employed by behavioral analysis or profilers is basically just a lot of common sense. And we're coming from an experience. Uh, we said that from experience, we've been in the uh, game. Uh, when we talk about holding back information, we know what it was like to be on the inside of an investigation and you don't want certain things uh, out there in public for specific reasons. And uh, we've gone through those reasons before, but so we're speaking about it from the inside. And that's why we came to the conclusions that we came to early on in this case. V.A. Morris, maybe the lack of behavioral analysts used is why many don't get caught. Well, this guy got caught and it had nothing to do with the behavioral analyst. It had to, it had do, to do with the science. With and science. Yeah, it had to do with science. So, yeah. um, look, I'm as interested as as you guys in hearing the behavioral analyst predict who is this person by the crime scene by his behavior, by statistics. One of the things we said also was that there's something called geographical profiling. And what that simply means is that the perpetrator probably lives around here. 
because he knows the area and he's comfortable committing a horrific crime like this in the area he lives. And, and not just this crime, many crimes, geographical profiling comes into play. Absolutely, Billy. And I guarantee that uh, anyone that put out a profile, uh, behavioral analysis that did come to a conclusion on who the police should be looking for was probably uh, what you just said. They would say it has to be someone with uh, located within the general area. I don't know if you want to use a 10 mile radius, a 15, whatever it is, someone that was going to be comfortable. We said that from early on to have gone into this location uh, slaughter four people, slip in, slip out without being noticed. There's no 911 call or anything like that at the time that it happened. So again, that's why we felt that that was going to be a, a safe statement to make. And it was the most logical to us. So uh, I think that that's some of the things that uh, I don't think there was many people that came out with a profile. I didn't hear any in the media, but if there was, I'm sure that they would have gone along and said the same thing that uh, you just said and that I uh, I echoed. Absolutely. Uh, Ali Books 06. Bill, I think Brian may go for the mentally ill defense to you, or what are your thoughts? I do not believe that, Ali, because to get an insanity defense, you really have to be off the wall. He's obviously smart. He obviously knew what he was doing. You could see he's, the decisions he made. He drives a car. He brought a knife, which shows premeditation. He brought a knife to the scene. He made certain moves to try to escape. So all of those things show that he's lucid and smart. So I do not think he'll get any kind of mental illness. Bill, an insanity defense, some of the components are is that you cannot be uh, cognizant of the actions that you took, meaning that you you think that what you did was not wrong. And, uh, you know, like you said, he's functional. He's driving a car. He's able to use a computer. He's able to hold down a job. He had a cell phone, all those different things. Uh, A person who goes for an insanity defense is completely dysfunctional, cannot function as what we would call a normal a human being. And again, I doubt very highly that it's going to be used in this case. Miss Chris, Bill, you said the whole time it would be DNA and cell phone data that solved it. Miss Chris, thank you for pointing that out. And I don't like to do the, I told you so's things, but it just shows that we sort of know what we're talking about, which, which I, I'm glad Miss Chris, you pointed that out. The other thing is, is that so many people doubted me when I said the perpetrator will bring his cell phone to this crime. And guess what? He did, but what did he do? He turned it off en route to the crime scene. But then guess what else he did? He turned it on leaving. So that's almost better than having it on the whole time because it also showed that he was trying to thwart the investigation by turning his cell phone off. But then this criminologist, this PhD aspirant, turns his cell phone on as he's leaving the murder scene. Not smart consciousness of guilt. Again, I'll borrow it from Mike Gary. And you're right, Bill, that, that was probably, you know, I I listen, if his cell phone pinged at the location, exactly at the time the murders were being committed, that would have been like smoking gun, obviously, but this is almost just as good because he's traveling to the location, shuts it off. And then when he leaves, he puts it back on again. We cited uh, science and technology. Both of those things were instrumental in this case. Uh, DNA is going to be the science and the cell phone technology and the video cameras seeing his vehicle in the area. That's going to be the technology. There's probably 
pages of science and technology. We're only uh, scratching the surface with what they put in the uh, in the probable cause affidavit. There's going to be a lot more to it. And we still don't know, and I believe it to be true, that th his blood was left at the scene. More than likely it was. Uh, we don't know that for, from the uh, from the uh, probable cause affidavit, but I'm sure we're going to find out uh, going forward when this case goes to court. DJ, thank you for the five-pound super chat. How do you add comments? They seem to be tuned off. Pounds, not dollars. DJ, your comments obviously came up on the screen. So, uh, and again, thank you. You know, folks, it's so, one of the other things that we predicted early on was that his car or how he got there Either, whether he, we said perhaps he walked through the woods and parked his car far away from the house, but they've got him right on video. And that's how they found the Hyundai Elantra initially, is they spotted a Hyundai Elantra on video. And as we say, and, and probably less in Moscow, Idaho, than in New York City and other big cities, there are cameras everywhere. There is Big Brother everywhere, whether it's key cameras or people have cameras on their homes to red light cameras, to license plate readers, to speed cameras. There are cameras everywhere. And this Hyundai Elantra was caught. That was a huge, huge piece of evidence also. Absolutely, Billy. Now, in 2016, there was a homicide case in Brooklyn that I was involved in. And the district attorney's office in Brooklyn, now, uh, residential areas of Brooklyn, there were cameras everywhere. There were traffic cameras. They put together a 43-minute video of specific things that happened related to video cameras and the cell phone technology. They showed the victim leaving his home. Uh, I'm sorry, the perpetrator leaving his home and driving into Brooklyn. He was out in Long Island. They showed all the different videos of his vehicle, him walking on the street before the, the uh, before the murder. And then after murder, fleeing the murder scene, the traffic camera sh showing him going through red lights when he was escaping. And again, the, the cell phone technology, the map of where he went before and after it was 43 minutes. It was like, watching a motion picture. I think that was what led to the conviction in that case. There may be something similar in this case. Absolutely. Niels Oberndorf, thank you for the two pound 49 super sticker. Very much appreciated. I want to play a little bit of this video. Victim surviving roommates is now under pressure to reveal why it took her hours, six hours to call police in the quadruple murder of her housemates and one of their boyfriends. Friends. Court documents show Dylan Mortensen was, quote, in frozen shock phase when she came face to face with the suspected killer. Our next guest is coming to her defense after she was in a similar situation 30 years ago. Alana Zabel was a student at University of Buffalo when somebody broke in and attacked her roommate. She initially heard heavy breathing next door, but did not check in until hours later when she says she found her roommate unconscious. Alana joins us now. Alana, thank you very much for sharing your very difficult story uh, for everyone. As, as pressure seems to be growing on this roommate to explain those six hours and why she didn't call police for coming face to face with this killer, what appears to be um, a door opening multiple times uh, while these killings took place, you walked in and saw your roommate and didn't even register the blood surrounding her. And your warning is don't judge others. You never know how you would respond in this situation. Yeah. Your story. Yeah, the mind is a powerful thing. And 
when you live with five other people and it's a very party aspect um, college life where it could be a fraternity prank or there are multiple people in, moving through the house at all times, you always want to assume that it's not going to be the worst case scenario. There's got to be another reason. So in my situation, I never saw the attacker. Um, I was pushed up through a window that he had entered, not knowing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why did someone leave the screen open? Why, you know, I'm not thinking the worst case scenario, just like I'm sure she was trying to put the pieces together. And ultimately the next morning, um, my other housemate, when she came home had smelled vomit and thought there was something wrong. We went in to check and I saw no blood, a lot of liquid. So I assumed that she had um, uh, choked on her vomit and was unconscious. And it wasn't until the paramedics came and I was walking behind. You know, folks, this is exactly what we're talking about. And I applaud uh, this young lady for telling her story. However, the media just gave Dylan her full name out there to a national audience. They just named her by name. And apparently, as you guys have stated in the chat, she's taken tons of heat on the internet. You know, judge not uh, lest you ye be judged. You know, it doesn't that come from the Bible, and I'm no biblical expert by any means, but there's a lot of judgmental people out there, you know? And I think it's very, very unfortunate that the media is doing that, Bill, because if uh, she was only identified as DM in the affidavit, it should remain that way. She's going to be a very, very important witness. It's almost like tampering with a witness naming her. I, I'm very upset about that. I'm very, uh, very uh, d dismayed by the media in this, uh, you know, releasing the name. That's terrible. They, you know, there they the media points the finger at the internet and social media. They're the worst. They are the absolute worst. Find the paramedic in the hallway, that he stopped and 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 stepped backwards, like, oh my God, look at all of this blood. And as soon as he said blood, like that, mm. the room was filled. The mattress was three quarters um, soaked in blood. She was covered in blood. I didn't see it beforehand. When you are in that heightened state of fear and survival, your mind will do what it has to do to protect you. Wow. Um, you have been talking about those eerie similarities to what happened there in Idaho. We talked to Mark Furman last hour, and he gives a lot of credit to that surviving roommate because we might not have the suspect in custody if it were not for her. Listen. Absolutely. I personally want to thank Dylan for what she did because she opened the door not once, not twice, but three times. And the third time, she saw the suspect. Without that description of the suspect and very accurate description, especially the bushy eyebrows, they never would have been able to make a nexus between the Elantra and Brian Koberger's uh, physical description. I heard you saying absolutely, because she was able to detail the height, the weight, the bushy eyebrows. Look, there's no doubt that Dylan is an important witness, but I don't agree with this. I mean, the car was caught on video the perpetrator would have been identified through DNA. But is she an important witness? Absolutely. Seeing the bushy eyebrows. And the other thing, we spoke about this the other night. Not only is she an eyeball witness, but she's an ear witness too. Because the if that was her, the perpetrator's voice that said that statement, she heard it. 
the good thing about her is giving uh, she gave a general description. And I think that once they put the Elantra together from the college where that college officer said that he had an Elantra and is a student registered at WSU, they may have looked at who owned it. And now he fits a description. It was just one more piece. Like you said, Bill, whether or not she sees him is not going to make the difference between him being found out as a perpetrator or not. But I did think I do think that it put them on the right track for sure. Absolutely. Uh, that eventually led to his arrest. Yeah, I really hope that the media can just back off a little bit from Dylan and allow her to heal because it's going to be a long process. And and not many people would know what that is like. I know that you have said on the record that you've you've lived with survivor's guilt and you can only imagine what this is like for that young lady um, who went through all yeah. of this that night and lost her friends. Yeah, I think I ran from it. This was a different age 30 years ago. And, you know, no one asks if you're okay. No one asks, you know, if you want therapy. My college didn't give me extensions. It's a totally different time. So I think, but also she has against her social media and people being armchair quarterbacks saying, this is what you should have done. No one knows what they would have done in that situation. And we can only try to surround her with support. And, um, and hopefully, and hopefully she is both professional and with loving family and friends to help her get through this because it's not going to be a, a quick healing. This will be with her the rest of her life. Well, you went through a lot as a young college student, Alana. I thank you for sharing your story as we continue to watch all of this, um, that happened out of Idaho, just absolutely tragic for these college students. Thank you very much. Of course. So interesting. And, you know, we had on, um, Michael Vecchioni. The other night, the former Brooklyn prosecutor, the chief of the Brooklyn uh, Homicide Squad back when he was a Brooklyn assistant district attorney. And he said in the prosecution, if he was the prosecutor in this case, the very first person, the very first piece of evidence he would put on after his opening statements would be Dylan. That's how powerful of a witness he believes she is. And he also reiterated, um, leave her alone, you know. No one knows what they would do. We all have in law enforcement and district attorneys have seen trauma and have seen people's behavior maybe not make sense to us. But if you understand trauma, then you can understand why someone would react the way that she did. Absolutely, Billy. I'm glad you brought up what Mike had said, because uh, introducing her as the first witness is going to really captivate a jury and show that uh, at four o'clock in the morning, uh, she came upon after hearing uh, screams and, and different things. She came upon a person wearing a mask and he says the evidence is going to take the mask off of this perpetrator. I think he was basically laying out how he would try the case. Very, very powerful. I think it was very, very smart on his point to uh, come up with that uh, that position on uh, going forward with the prosecution. And I think that, uh, you know, hopefully uh, the team is being put together now to prosecute this case. As I said before, they have the burden to prove him guilty. And I think with all the evidence that uh, is going to be presented uh, it's not going to be an easy task. And uh, as we know with the OJ case, once you're uh, once you're uh, acquitted of murder charges, you can never be tried on those charges again. Uh, OJ walked free for different reasons. But uh, again, uh, they're going to dot their I's and cross their T's. They're going to put together a team and they're going to do their best to bring this prosecution to a successful uh, conviction. You know, one of the things that they're talking about uh, is – 
the recovery or the lack of recovery of the knife. And with the recovery of the sheath that basically said K-Bar knife, and it had the U.S. Marine Corps insignia on it, and then it was the eye was dotted with the perpetrator's DNA on mm-hmm. the button used to open the sheath. That is so, 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 so powerful. So they almost don't need, and of course, would it be great if they recovered the murder weapon? 100%. Do they have the murder weapon? I don't know. Could they have the murder weapon? Absolutely. But we don't know that yet. But uh, many people keep talking about, oh, if they don't get that, you know, what do you, well, what if they don't? The dots are still being connected, even without that knife. Absolutely, Billy. And again, as we talked about previously, they're going to introduce the sheath and it's going to say K-Bar on it. You're going to have the medical examiner. It's going to be able to testify with expert testimony that uh, the knife that caused the wounds on the victim the victim's body is going to be of a certain dis- uh, a length in the blade, width in the blade, and it's going to be consistent with that of a K-Bar knife. So again, you're connecting the dots, you're dotting the I's and you're crossing the T's. If the knife is recovered, that would be fantastic. If it's not, it's not going to be that much of an obstacle to get over. Of course, you do have the sheet with the DNA on the snap. Investigation. Moscow police contacted the makers of the knife, believed to be the murder weapon. The probable cause affidavit says that officers found the sheath to a K-bar knife next to Madison Mogan's body. DNA on, on that sheath helped police connect Brian Koberger to the scene. Now, the director of sales and marketing for K-bar told TMZ that investigators contacted the company about the knives and sheaths they sell, but K-bar did not have any records of someone named Brian Koberger purchasing one. Experts say the knife. You know, he could have bought that knife anywhere. He could have bought it at a garage sale. He could have bought it somewhere where it's not tracked. Brick shop, army Navy store, cash you pay, and there's no bill, you know. Right. Knife that would fit the sheath is a seven inch utility knife, commonly used as a tool by campers or hunters. While police haven't found the knife itself, the sheath with Koberger's DNA is on it. It's a pretty big get for the prosecution. Wouldn't you agree, Terry? I think it's a huge get for the prosecution. Anytime you can get either the weapon that committed the crime or something associated with that weapon, you're doing well. And here they have that sheath. I tell you one thing, that is one hell of a scary looking knife. And uh, obviously that's why it's a military knife used by the United States Marine Corps called the K-Bar knife, but it's extremely an intimidating looking knife besides being designed to kill. Absolutely. And according to the affidavit, it was found next to one of the bodies and it did have DNA on it. And definitely that's going to help convict Koberger. I think it's probably one of the best pieces of evidence they have at this time. If they, of course, can find that knife, that's going to really solidify, you know, this case. But for right now, having the sheath, he dropped it. It was a huge mistake on his part, knowing that he is someone who has specialized, has a master's degree, working on his Ph.D. in criminology. That was a huge mistake if, in fact, he is the one who dropped that sheath next to the body. Yeah, I agree with you, Terry. The DNA evidence looks strong. In my experience, the DNA evidence tends to always look strong in arrest affidavits, though. Prosecutors love using it, and judges love signing off on warrants when they see it. What I would say is, let's wait and see. With Koberger arrested and probable cause made out for the arrest, they also have probable cause to take a swab of the inside of his cheek for DNA. No, if that swab comes now, if that swab comes back as a match for the suspect on the sheath, 
it limits your arguments but doesn't eliminate them. Then we start talking about potentially contaminated crime scenes and how much of Kohlberger's DNA was on the sheath. Very little, then maybe the police mishandled the evidence. A lot of DNA, maybe touching things and, and passing it around, that argument uh, might work. But if the DNA tests uh, negative or inconclusive for Kohlberger, that's where this case gets really crazy because the defense may have a real case on their hands. So for the DNA, I say, wait and see. Yeah, you know what, Brian, that sheath isn't the only piece of evidence that the police have. They also have footprints and it's based in blood. And if in fact those footprints are found to be footprints from shoes that Kohlberger wore, I think that sort of seals the case. Now look, they know for a fact it has a certain pattern. They can look for shoes with that pattern. They've already stated that it's a diamond pattern close to a van shoe. And if it turns out he has those shoes in his closet or he's ever purchased shoes that have that pattern, I think it's going to be just like a fingerprint. And it will definitely seal the case for the prosecution as far as that's concerned. And we've seen it in other cases. I mentioned this before, it convicted George Wagner, the fact that he had shoes that were very similar to those shoes that were found at the footprint in those crime scenes. So if they can do something like that here, they will really, I think, seal the deal. Yeah, Terry, but that's a big and many, many ifs. If they can connect it to Koberger, then that's great. But if not, then this whole shoe print, it's a nothing burger. Part he, he is 100% wrong. First of all, they've recovered the blood evidence from the footprints through using a chemical called amino black. It brought up the footprint. Now, there's two types of things with evidence, and it's, there's something called class characteristics and individual characteristics, and I'm going to explain to you what both are. Class characteristics are the fact that every Adidas shoe of a certain brand has the exact same bottom. So you can go on a database for Adidas, and in this uh, circumstance, it was a van shoe. So this type of van shoe would have the same bottom. What is different are called individual characteristics, and that is how you wear your shoe. How you wear out your shoe, and I'm going to use some crime scene terminology, pits and fissures that are in the bottom, on the bottom of your shoe. If they recover that shoe and have a good bloody print, he might as well, you know, it's over. It's all over except the counting. Billy, uh, one last thing to add to that. Uh, let's say they do recover a van shoe that they believe is the shoe, and it could be like a pebble or, or some kind of a gash in the bottom of the sneaker from something sharp that he stepped on, and that's in the print. Bingo. You don't have an exact fingerprint match, but you have a van shoe with the same exact type of wear or the same exact type of uh, pebble inside of it or a gash. And again, that bloody footprint is in the crime scene. If that shoe was in his closet, that's another very strong piece of evidence. Absolutely. And and the thing is, is that we don't believe in And it's sort of in a way, I know attorneys are dying to weigh in on this, but we don't know how much evidence they have yet. So with discovery, as you guys know, that follow true crime, discovery is a legal term where the prosecution has to give copies of their evidence to the defense. And it's by a certain date. I don't know what date the judge has decided that all discovery must be in. So they must turn over all their evidence, all their paperwork to the defense so that the defense can prepare for trial. So you could see a lot of defense attorneys already want to weigh in on this stuff and they're going crazy. Pam Burchell, 
Thank you so much for the 199 super sticker. Uh, we actually have Niles Oberndorf. Thank you again for the 249 super sticker. Very much appreciated. So, yeah, they want to weigh yeah, in let me on this. Make a comment about discovery, please. Uh, discovery, like you said, it's all the evidence at some point during the case, the judge is going to make a ruling that, okay, you have to turn over all your evidence by this specific date. Now, let's just say that something is held back, or even if it's forgotten, that's something that you can get a, a conviction overturned on appeal later on down the line. So it's very, very important. The standard of proof in the criminal justice system in the United States is everything beyond a reasonable doubt. So discovery is part of the evidence. It has to be turned over. If you leave something out, that uh, perpetrator who's convicted and is now a convict can have his case overturned on appeal. And again, I'm sure that the uh, the prosecution in this case isn't going to hold back anything. They'll turn, turn over everything. However, they may need time to collect more stuff, do more interviews going forward. That's where the judge may give some leeway in this case because it is a quadruple homicide. It is a very, very high profile case. We don't know the exact date of that yet. I'm sure we'll be finding out sometime in the future. Uh, folks, for your information, he didn't—he didn't say it's a vegan burger. He said it's a nothing burger. Uh, <laughs> just so you know. Part of the problem is that this house has a lot of partygoers and people coming in and out. The other issue is that the authorities are relying on the testimony of Dylan, who described how this mass figure was moving through the house. If the defense can discredit something as small as the direction of this person was was moving in the house, her memory of the events because she was rightfully terrified. She was tired, maybe not sober, or there is no link to Koberger and this shoe. Then this argument. Uh, the defense can use to plant a seed of doubt in the case and the investigation and argue if they're wrong here, what else are they wrong about? The defense could use this issue to make a mountain out of a molehill, so to speak, and enough of them could cause problems for the prosecution's case. I think we kind of see a preview of what the trial might look like when it actually happens, you know, sometime later. Thanks to both of you for breaking that down. Coming up on Long Crime Daily, children left behind when so, look, none of us here, none of us sitting behind these chairs here at the Police Off the Cuff podcast will ever say any case is a slam dunk because we know what can happen. You can have what appears to be the strongest case on earth and a jury can uh, vote not to convict. So we would never, and I know Phil would never say that, I would never say this case is a slam dunk. This case is going to be tough. And... uh even with all the evidence they have, you know, many of the um, criminal justice talking heads we've had on here, lawyers, Mike Vecchioni, you know, uh, Professor Michael Geary, none of us would ever say that this case is a, a, uh, a slam dunk. But what we would say is that DNA makes this case, you know, winnable. Uh, the way I used to refer to cases when they came together quickly, uh, we would refer to it in, uh, in the detective bureau as a ground ball case. Now, a ground ball case, what I mean by that is that uh, perhaps there's, uh, you know, police get to the scene and they're able to arrest the perpetrator that committed the homicide, uh, still remained on the scene, whether it be a domestic violence case or something like that. So that's like a ground ball homicide. In any case, though, I don't care what it is, ground ball, whatever you want to call it, uh, if you get a good defense attorney that can punch holes in uh, a story or punch holes in an evidence or impeach the credibility of a person that's testifying a witness. You could have doubt created and that ground ball homicide can turn into an acquittal 
like that. And we definitely don't want to see that in any, any case where we believe the person that did it is, is guilty and then they get off. So again, uh, very, very important. That's what the defense attorney's job is to create doubt. He doesn't have to prove his client innocent. The state has to prove the client guilty. Phil, I'm going to have you field this one. Uh, Mary Ricketts says, if the prosecution doesn't have to prove motive, demanding the roommate witness explain her actions is ludicrous. Well, listen, uh, uh, we've said it time and again, motive is not one of the components need to convict on any case. However, her actions are only going to be explained by one person and one person alone, that's her. Now, when we do hear what her reasons were or what, led to her actions of not calling the police, it may just all come together and say, you know what? Now it makes sense to me. We don't know what that is. Just like we didn't know that a PhD student is turning out to be what we believe is the perpetrator in this case. It may be something as simple as that. And that last video that you played, Phil, uh, Bill, before the one that you played just now, uh, where we had a victim of a previous homicide uh, who witnessed it and she's saying that she froze and everything. Maybe that's exactly what happened here. There's a human a human uh, response uh, fight flight or freeze. She might've went into that freeze state. She froze. She didn't know what to do. She went into a catatonic state. Perhaps she fell asleep. And then when she awoke, she alerted other people. And again, that's when 911 was called. We don't know until we know. Let's hear what she has to say at the trial. Vet girl, RW uh, bus. Thank you so much for the 1999 super chat. Why only one male DNA on the sheath? The sheath is in uh, M bed with two victims, her bed, her sheets, two victims with obvious injuries. Please and thanks. Why not the victim's DNA or even animal uh, DNA from the dog? Well, I can't uh, say exactly why, but I would assume that the perpetrator had the sheath somehow tucked in his pants uh, and he probably flipped the button, removed the knife out of the sheath and the sheath dropped onto the bed. Potentially no one else touched it right. but him. That's the only thing I can really surmise. Uh, and then the attack proceeded. And the attack happened away from the sheath. And on, although on the bed, yeah, it's it's. should there be? Uh, most of us would think, oh, there's got to be other DNA. But, you know, sometimes there's not. Not, you know? not necessarily. And that sheath is designed as uh, probably a belt loop on it to be carried on your belt. We don't know if he had it on his belt, but perhaps he did. And in the struggle, it could have uh, gotten removed from uh, his belt, or perhaps he just had it, like you said, tucked in his pants, Bill. He removes the knife from the sheet during the attack. He drops it or it's knocked out of his hand, whatever the case may be. But again, it could have fell underneath a blanket or behind something. And it was on the bed when it was recovered, as, as it says in the affidavit. However, perhaps no one else touched it. The last person to touch it was the perpetrator uh, releasing the snap to to remove the uh, to remove the knife from the sheath? And again, that may just explain it. I don't know exactly. None of us really know. The only person that knows that would be the perpetrator. But I think that the, what we just the, the two instances we just laid out, whether or not it was uh, taken off his belt by the struggle, or if he dropped it by taking it out and doing the attack, he could have dropped it. And I'm sure that he didn't want to leave that behind. I don't think it was intentional. But uh, the fact that there's no other DNA on it, I don't think that's a big deal. 
Joe, Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a, in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, where you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories, and a very experienced, well-versed criminal trial attorney. Absolutely. You know, I just want someone just posted uh, Magical Mary. Thank you so much for the 499 Super Chat. And what can the defense say if they find his DNA under victim's nails? Well, that is such, such, and I would never say, oh, it's a guaranteed conviction, but that is such a powerful, powerful piece of evidence. How else do they say his DNA got underneath the fingernails of one of the victims? So again, I think that that would be very tough for the defense to explain. And again, a super, super powerful piece of evidence. Thank you, Magical Mary, for pointing that out. Thank you for the four ninety nine super chat. Thank you, Billy. That would mean close contact. You would have to have close contact with the person that their DNA is under the victim's fingernails. That uh, under the victim's fingernails. That victim would have had to have close contact with whoever's DNA that is. And it doesn't mean that it happened right then at that murder scene. However, that's the most likely time when the close contact took place. However, it could have taken right before, uh, could have taken place right before uh, the incident, the murder when it took place. But again, it's irrefutable. I think that if, if your DNA is under the victim's fingernails, uh, that's screaming perpetrator to make. You know, Phil, I had said, and um, uh, Pam Bachel, thank you very much for the 199 Super Chat. Very much appreciated. Thank you. I had said um, earlier on, uh, when we talk about evidence and the evidence that the prosecution is going to have, that we have not heard at all from the pathologist. And the pathologist will have performed the autopsies on on the four uh Four victims, and again, I'll I'll name them by name. I I know some of you guys take umbrage when I when I uh, don't use their names. The pathologists would have um, processed Ethan Chapin, Zena Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonzalez would have uh, performed the autopsy, which includes recovering evidence from underneath their fingernails or or from their bodies, hairs, fibers, saliva. Uh, you know, whatever blood evidence, whatever the pathologist recovered. So that part of the evidentiary um, process is done by the pathologist. And that could be the most powerful evidence that we'll, that we'll see. And again, discovery hasn't occurred yet, so we don't know what they have. Bill, many times when we're doing a case or we talk about a case, we always say that we don't have access to the case folder. However, we do know the steps that would be taken. Now, if you have a victim like these four victims, uh, the first thing, one of the first things that crime scene would do would be to bag the hands to preserve any evidence that are on the victim's hands. Uh, example is the uh, skin cells could be underneath the fingernails of the victim. There could be blood from the perpetrator on the victim's hands. There could also be touch DNA, which we talked about. So again, those are the things that the medical examiner would be examining. They would swab the hands to see if there's any DNA, if there's blood. And they, they go over every inch of the body, 
just about with a microscope to see if there's something that they can lift from that person's body that can uh, tie to the perpetrator of the uh, of the crime. Absolutely. I just want to play this. This is a very interesting. Now, newly released security video shows what could be suspect Brian Koberger's white Elantra driving past the crime scene the day of the stabbings. The video shows what appears to be a white vehicle driving by, slowing down near the King Road home. In an affidavit released last week, investigators say co-workers' phone pinged in the area of the off-campus home at about 9 o'clock the morning of the murders. Court documents also say multiple security cameras near the murder scene caught video of a similar vehicle driving by the home at least four times between 3.29 and 4.20 the morning of the murders. Experts say the video shows the vehicle speeding away from the crime scene area at about 4.20 a.m., which, according to the affidavit, is right after the murders likely occurred. More than a month later, on December 15th, Koberger was pulled over while driving his white Elantra. At the time of the traffic stop, Koberger was in Indiana, traveling with his father from Washington to his family home in Pennsylvania. Coming from Washington State University? Yeah. And you're going where? Oh. Oh, okay. After Koberger's arrest on December 30th, investigators confirmed his white Hyundai Elantra was seized as authorities searched his parents' home in Pennsylvania. Koberger is expected to appear in Latah County Court on Thursday of this week. You can watch that right here on Long Crime Network. So that's an amazing piece of evidence. You know, folks in the chat, someone was talking about time of death. Um, you know, one of the best ways to determine time of death, believe it or not, is eyewitness. And, you know, certain things like the crying out and the screams, that's probably a better indicator than science because science, believe it or not, can come close to predicting time of death, but not exact. And there's right, things like right. body temperature, uh, rigor mortis, algal mortis, uh, lividity, all of those things that are uh, predictors of time of death. But the, the best way is eyewitness. Absolutely, Billy. Uh, you know, just think about that video of him being pulled over in the car now. When they go to trial and they're going to talk about this car is registered to him, that uh, he drives the car, and now you're going to have a video of him behind the wheel of the car, and then you're going to show all those different videos of the car in the area, whether it be 9 o'clock in the morning or 2.57 uh, when he was first in the area or first left his house. All of those things are going to become very, very powerful. And one other thing I want to point out about DM, who was in the house, the, the person that saw uh, the perpetrator. Um, it was said by Dr. Michael Bodden on one of the news shows that he doesn't believe that uh, if an ambulance was right outside the house, that those victims would have survived those wounds. He exact statement was that he believes all of the victims were dead by the time that the perpetrator left the home. So again, everybody should take a deep breath on DM, give her a break. Uh, she's been through a traumatic, traumatic experience. And again, I don't think it would have made a difference had 911 been called at that specific moment. The only difference is perhaps maybe the perpetrator could have been captured uh, in, around that time. But again, uh, none of the victims would have survived based on the wounds and what he knew, Dr. Michael Bott, and that came from him. 
Absolutely. You know, something you can't ever point a finger at someone who's a witness that that really means well. There was no malice in her in her activity, no malice in her actions. That and you know, I I really take great umbrage that Fox used to, and I understand early in the investigation they named the other two roommates. They they ID'd them. But if you stop IDing them, stop using their name, uh people will forget, you know? But yet the the media seems that they need to put the name out there, you know? I think that because it was given out early on that they felt, well, you know, it was already out there. And that's not, that's not true. I believe what you're saying to be correct, Billy, uh, it was put out there early on. It shouldn't have been. And I don't think anyone should have repeated it. And uh, I'm just a little bit uh, surprised at all of these mainstream media that they don't have the conscious of mind to say, well, you know, uh, somebody might take this the wrong way and, and, you know, uh, dox this girl and put her information online and then all kinds of harassment and anything else could take place. You know, we said, uh, the very most important, uh, there's tons of evidence in this case. There's tons of room for people to invent conspiracy theories, even with all the evidence we have. And it's important to, to listen and, and, and to look at the evidence and follow the evidence and, that's how crimes are solved. And that's that's why we sort of uh, fashion ourselves after, you know, using the truth, following the evidence, not trying to be sensational. And, um, you know, the big, we said the biggest evidence in this case, of course, is going to be science and DNA. And so far that has uh, proven to be the case. Phil, I'm going to, uh, we've been on for an hour and 12 minutes. I think we're going to, uh, Start wrapping it up. I'm going to give you your final thoughts. My final thoughts are that uh, even though I was in law enforcement most of my adult life, uh, I still learn things about behavior. I still learn things about evidence. The technology with DNA is constantly getting better and better. Uh, the technology on cell phones and all the video cameras and everything, we're learning stuff every day. We're just using our instincts to give our opinions on what we think should be done. And again, uh, Keep these families and your thoughts and prayers. I've said that many times. I'll say it again. Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zana Canoodle, and Katie Gonzalez were real human beings. They were real people. They were uh, murdered in a horrific way. And just keep every one of those families and DM and all of these victims in your thoughts and prayers. You know, folks, again, I repeat that uh, Brian Koberger is uh, innocent and to proven guilty. We're following the case. We're presenting from a police perspective again all you all our subscribers our fans our friends that listen to us on police off the cuff real crime stories i want to thank you for all your support our channel is growing all because of you uh have a great night and stay safe everybody stay safe everyone One episode, just